Napa know-how. It takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies, there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10 31 Wade, it opens wide for Wade. Whoa, oh, done it. Morning clock is done. Here's Wade to get screened. Euro step. Basket. Welcome to the Heat Check. I'm Wes Goldberg. With me as always, it's David Ramil. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great, Wes. How are you? Good. Today we are going to talk about Hassan Whiteside cocking it back to the Waffle House, Josh McRoberts' future with the Heat, and uh, play fill-in-the-blanks. But first, let's talk about the Heat's playoff push. Miami won three straight games and recently lost a game to the Thunder on Sunday, but we're right there in the mix for the sixth seed now, just a game and a half back behind the Bucks, who we play Tuesday. David, do you think we have a chance of getting the sixth seed, and would you bet on it? I would not bet on it, but I do think we have a good chance. Um, I, moreover, though, to me, I'm just not sure if it's a, a, the right goal for us. Is, is it more important for us to keep climbing up in the standings, or is it just more important for us to continue to tweak whatever weaknesses have presented themselves over the course of the year. The thing is for me that I just want to see more consistency out of Miami. We had three great games last week, and then we had a bit of a letdown against Oklahoma City. So to me, it's more important that we just continue to get better. And I know I sound a little bit like Eric Spolstra when I say that, that it's all about the process. But you know what? He might be right. I, well, I think that's exactly what Spo's line of thinking is. And I was just thinking that before you mentioned that, because he always kind of defuses the questions about um, seed chasing or looking at the standings or anything like that because he kind of just wants the team to play better. But if this team is focusing on the process and, you know, what's what's that what's that quote? Like, if you're, if you're too focused on winning the game, you probably won't win the game. You just got to focus on winning every play or getting better. Or, is, is there something like that? There's a theory like that, and that's kind of where the heat go. And if that's the case, if they just work on tweaking it, they might just end up with a better seed. The Buc- the Bucks have lost six straight games. They're two games up on Charlotte away from the eighth seed. After 14 days ago, they weren't even in the playoffs. You know, it might the two aren't exclusive, obviously. So I think you're right. They should just be focusing on playing better because even if they do make it to the sixth seed and pass that first round, they're probably not making it past the second round. So if they're so concerned about that, I think you're right. They just need to focus on playing better. And that could just lead to the sixth seed in general. I mean, it generally does. I mean, you hear about even LeBron saying, you know, over in Cleveland that he's not concerned about seeding, that throughout his career he's never played for. And I'm willing to bet that that's a mantra that he learned here in Miami. It's not about that. And we saw the obsession with first seed, second seed last year when we were battling, quote-unquote, with the Indiana Pacers. Um, and it ultimately didn't matter, you know, if this team is willing to play... Well, it may have mattered. Did it? Well, if, well, I guess not, I guess not, because there was no chance of them catching the Spurs, right, for the first, for home court, so never mind. Exactly. I mean, we're we're too far below in the standings, we're not going to make a push above, you know, six, um, unless there's some kind of catastrophic disaster, I don't don't see it happening, so I mean, the best we could hope for is six, right? Yes. So, if if we get our sixth seed, we're still going to match up with either Toronto or Chicago, depending on who finishes third. Um, and I think we're capable of beating them, especially if we're playing our best basketball. And that's what's most important. We saw during that three-game win streak, which matched our, our, our longest streak of the season, we saw this team playing better, I would say, than ever. 
I think, or ever this season, because it's been such an up-and-down season, but you have Dragic playing at an extremely high level, you've got Wade playing at an MVP-type level, and you've got all the pieces contributing off the bench, uh, you know, all the other starters, everybody knew their role, and it worked to perfection. Then you have, like I said, that letdown against Oklahoma City, clearly there are problems there. Now, you could chalk it all up to the Thunder playing well, um, and they certainly did, but Miami did have problems. They they allowed the pick and roll to kind of disintegrate. Um, they allowed, you know, Oklahoma City size to take advantage of them. And there's nothing you can do about that. But maybe Spolster needs to change the lineup around or just adjust. And and that's part of the question is, you know, we're going to see as they continue this road trip if they make the necessary adjustments. But the sixth seed isn't the goal. The goal is to play better. And if you wind up at the sixth seed, then it doesn't matter who you face in the playoffs because you're able to probably beat them. That said, getting the sixth seed gives you a much better opportunity to make it past the first round. I think after everything the Heat have gone through this season, playing the Raptors and the Bulls, with who are more, more prone to an upset than either the Hawks or the Cavs certainly are, um, yes. that could mean a lot for this team moving forward. Just to say, we kind of figured it out. It clicked. You know, We made it past the first round of the playoffs. We upset a team in the playoffs because we knew we were better than those teams. I think that could carry a, a lot of momentum going into next season. My, my problem's always been that this season has been so emotionally draining for these players because of the, the injuries, because of the inconsistency, because of the changes in the lineup, everything they've gone through, that even making the playoffs feels to me like it would be such an accomplishment that they might almost be spent by the time they get to the playoffs. Hmm. I'm not sure that advancing past the first round is a realistic thing. Yeah, there's a matchup thing. The only That's why I've always maintained that facing Cleveland would be the only chance for them to have the kind of the intensity, the energy to, to really focus on, on getting past LeBron and the Cavaliers. Because otherwise, again, it's just another playoff matchup that they don't really care about. I don't know that this team realistically sees themselves as contenders. And because they don't, the, just the act of making the playoffs feels like it would be enough for them, and they'd feel satisfied mm. and complacent. Now, I know Dwayne Wade is, is a proven winner. I know that everybody on the team wants to make a statement, but it feels to me, and I could be dead wrong about this, and I've been certainly dead wrong in the past, that once they make the playoffs, they'll feel satisfied that that's their statement, that they've made it. They've accomplished something because of their ability to overcome all the injuries and inconsistency, and so it won't be nearly as important for them to advance past whoever they face in the first round. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, because I think in the Eastern Conference, it's so easy to make the playoffs that they basically, you know, or almost fell into the playoffs until they actually started playing well. And they're only, they're, you know, they're at the seventh seed. They could have not played as good as they've played the last week and still fallen into the eighth seed either way. But the fact that they could actually get the sixth seed, I think just saying, like, oh, no, we're a real playoff team. We're not just one of those teams in the Eastern Conference that just kind of fell ass backwards into the eighth seed. I think there might be something like that. But you mentioned the Thunder game before and some of the things that went wrong. How much of that do you think was because Hassan Whiteside got into early foul trouble? A big part of it. Um, yeah. But I would put more of the blame on Udonis Haslam not being able to keep up with Cantor or Stephen Adams. I mean, it was just a bad matchup. For Chris Anderson had a hard time, too. Yeah. Um, too much speed, too much quickness for bigs, too much strength. Uh, I mean, Whiteside maybe could have contended, but even he seemed a little bit overmatched at times. So I, I wouldn't necessarily think that just having him for more time or get into a flow, I don't know if it would have changed as much as we would have hoped. Maybe they wouldn't have been blown out as completely as they did in the second half, but overall I'd still say that the combination of Cantor and Adams was going to be disastrous for Miami it's, to guard. It seemed like Whiteside wasn't used to the speed of Cantor and Adams because those guys can move. And, um, you know, Whiteside had to come up and play pretty high and at least show some sort of threat to Russell Westbrook in the pick and roll. And, we, yes. you know, that was a really big part of Miami's game plan was to make Ru uh, Russell Westbrook pass the ball, which he did. Yeah. And it ended up going to Enos Cantor almost every time who scored 15 points in that first quarter. Um, and I don't think Whiteside, we know Whiteside can close really quickly, right, in the paint. Like one step and he's on from one side of the paint to the other. But um, I don't think he was necessarily used to the speed that Cantor was playing with. And I think as the game went on, he kind of adjusted a little bit, but never really could because he got those two fouls so early up in the game. 
that I thought that really took things out of rhythm. And then you throw in, you know, Chris Anderson or Haslam, as you said, just don't have the athleticism right now to keep up with those guys. And it kind of had me thinking, this team could really use maybe going, looking into next season, a third center who might, you know, maybe a more athletic guy. And we kind of made the case with JaVale McGee might be a good fit like that, but maybe just a more athletic, younger, more versatile third big who could be used in spot situations like that, especially if Whiteside's going to get into foul trouble early on. Uh, and his Cantor's available. I don't see why we wouldn't try to get after him. I don't know. The Thunder are quite in a pickle with him. Yeah. I We've talked about it on this podcast before. I think he's going to go before. after way too much money, and he's going to price himself out of... I'm sure he would be on Miami's wish list, but I just don't see it happening anyway. Yeah. But, you know, there is another big that's available that is really skilled, uh, an underrated rebounder, a pretty good passer, he stretches the floor really well, um, and he's a hell of a perimeter shooter. And I think he's somewhat familiar with the uh, Heat's offensive system. Juwan Howard's coaching now. <laughs> You're right, but I was talking about Chris Bosch. <laughs> That's true. He's coming back. Um, well, I think, and we'll talk about Josh McRoberts a little bit later, but Bosch stopped playing center, basically, when Whiteside became the starting center. Or when they kind of yeah. just went the big lineup anyway and started starting and started Birdman at center for a little while. Um, but there's an opportunity for Bosch and for the Heat to play small ball and, and move Chris Bosch to the center position, too, a little bit next year. So I'm really excited about that. Coming up next, we're going to do a new segment. It's called Finishing Each Other's Sandwiches. We're going to play fill-in-the-blanks uh, next on the Heat Check. Welcome to a new segment that we're doing here on the Heat Check called Finishing Each Other's Sandwiches. We're going to play fill-in-the-blanks really quick. Are you ready, David? Absolutely. Awesome. So I'll go first. Miami's three Miami's three game win streak was the highlight of the season. I think it was the very pinnacle for Miami's year. We had always looked back to those that first three game win streak and then subsequent to that the win over Dallas. But to me, that three game win streak was as good as you could possibly see. Just because Dwayne Wade was playing at such a high level. It was beating LeBron um, and the victory over Portland when we had to come back and Wade hits that clutch shot, all of that was just glorious. And to me it was I don't think it was fool's gold at all. I know some people might think that, but to me, it was the highlight of the season. The three-game win streak, I think, was number one. It was for real. It was, uh, you know, the, this team clicked. Goran Dragic seems to has a, have adjusted a little bit. And um, I see this team kind of keeping that chemistry, this continuity going forward. That Thunder loss was a bad one, but I chalk that up to a lazy Sunday almost and some weird rhythm things and bad adjustments going throughout the game, but um, I definitely think this team, that three-game win streak was a real thing. You know, that first three-game win streak that started at the beginning of the year was also real, but then all those injuries just kind of laid in afterwards, and as long as this team stays healthy and it's a brand new team since that first three games of the year, it was a really good sign, and I think they needed that confidence to say, oh, we could beat some really good teams like the Cavs and the Trailblazers. Let's do this moving forward these last few games. I agree. So, now for you. Among all-time Heat point guards, Goran Dragic ranks blank. Second. And I think that's fair, considering that I think we'll always keep Tim Hardaway at first until Dragic wins. Unless Dragic goes to a couple of All-Star games, which I think are certainly, is certainly possible for him, um, especially in the Eastern Conference. And this team going forward has a chance to win a title. So I think Dragic just fresh on the team is already ranked second. Now, in my heart, Jason Williams has a special place. There's nothing like watching Jason Williams just run a fast break and then just stop, pop a three-pointer out of nowhere. I, it always seemed like he did that when you least expected it. He was just in transition. Could it was probably a, it could have been a three on one, but he'd be like, you know what, screw you guys, and he would just stop at the top of the key. Probably the hardest three pointer to make, right? Is that straight on one because it's like the yeah. furthest. Yeah. And then it would just go for it. And he just he used to do that all the time. So Jason Williams was like my favorite point guard, heat point guard, 
you know, to watch, but Dragic is an absolute joy. I mean, just the way he finishes at the rim, and he's so creative. It's unlike anything we've seen since, you know, Wade was a little bit younger. But even then, Wade used to finish, like, over the rim a lot. You know, LeBron was an amazing finisher, but that was just, like, brute strength, right? Like, you just he would just go through you if he wasn't just going to jump over you. Dragic just plays under the rim, like that Steve Nash thing, that one-hand layup with the high arc, and it's just... It's it's fantastic to see how creative he can be. Almost like a Kyrie Irving type finisher. I love it. And, and somewhere Mario Chalmers sheds a single tear. <laughs> love you, Rio. He's just like a... You know... I'd put him right there with uh, Tony Douglas from last year. Oh, that's... that's but that's I love Tony way. Douglas. Remember the early the early renderings of this podcast was the All You Can Heat podcast. I think we were just like three episodes that I spent talking about Tony Douglas. Just straight. Absolutely. Those were good times. He's on a team somewhere now, too, I think. Uh, Maybe got a 10-day and then didn't... I don't know. I want to say it was the Pelicans, and then it was odd that they acquired Norris Cole, and so he was, again, out of the lineup. They wanted to put together that that great tandem. They wanted to recapture that magic. Well, you can't have Rio in New Orleans, so screw off. All right, Hassan Whiteside's fast break dunk the other night was blank. Overrated. Oh my god. You know, I, I like his quote afterwards, but I think it was. I mean, we, we've seen him display that kind of athleticism in the past, but right? was it just the fact that he cocked it back that everybody was winging and awing about? I think it was the little cradle mean, at the bottom. Yeah. Maybe. You know, I didn't see it live, and maybe I wasn't, you know, caught up in the, the Twitter explosion that I'm sure ensued. But, you know, to me, I saw it afterwards, and I was like, yeah, really great. But I, I've come to expect that from this. You think it has no significance? Am I going to look back at the season? I think that's the highlight of the year now. To me, the significance was he stole the ball on the fast break, dribbled it down the court, and then dunked it in one fluid motion. It's, I don't think we have seen that athleticism before from him. We knew he was athletic, but not that kind of athletic. It was a little bit of a tryout for the dunk contest. When was the last time that, that he'd had a guy in a dunk contest? Harold Miner. I mean, I think that's It's been a while, Brown's right? So yeah. I think it's time that maybe Whiteside starts, uh, he might have to put on a cape and, and enter the dunk contest. All right, that's not gonna happen, first of all. Why? Uh, <laughs> you really think that he's dunk contest worthy? You see the people that are like they're they are desperate. They're putting rookies in the thing. I mean, they. Okay. I think nobody wants to see a seven foot stiff out of Miami do it. I don't think. I, that's but he is at least trying. Oh well, now we're giving points for effort. I don't. I don't know. I, I just. I don't. I, look, maybe I'm a bit spoiled after four years of the big three era. I've seen LeBron do some incredible things, and yeah, it was a hell of a display with athleticism. But to my point, also then is. Why isn't this something we've seen before? If, if you're so enthused about it, and I don't take that away from you, you're certainly more than welcome to. Thank if you. you're that enthused about it, why the hell isn't that something that he does on the regular? I mean, and, and I think that opens up a whole Pandora's box of questions as to his effort and what's he being utilized as. You know, if he can do that, and, and obviously he can without straining himself, hurting himself, or, or you know, overextending himself in any way. Why is that something that we well, see? Well, how often is a center in position to steal the ball on the perimeter and just dribble it down the court, though? Okay. We've seen him steal the ball and then make outlet passes. We've seen him dunk on pick and rolls on the dive to finish them. So I think we've seen that athleticism, but not just in that opportunity that he had. Fine. All right. Agree or disagree? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Okay. I wish Michael Beasley would blank before the end of the season. Play power forward? I would love to just see him start at power forward. Okay. That's what I want. I think I envision him as somebody that can add some value and athleticism, hit some corner threes, spread the offense out a little bit more, and if we're going to go with this high-tempo, pace-and-space thing again... Having him instead of Udonis Haslam, even though Udonis Haslam has hit two three-pointers this season, um, I think having Beasley out there, at least as the threat and the athletic guy that he is, 
we could spread the floor a little bit more and do some high pick and roll action with him and Whiteside, who is terrifically athletic and can dunk and should be in the dunk contest. And Wade could do the same thing. I think that would, I would love to see that moving forward. I don't want to mess with Spo's nine-man rotation that he has. I understand starting Haslam is kind of the only way to get him in the game. But I'd like to see Beasley start power forward just because I'm interested. I, I, I like the answer, but at the same time, I was expecting more creativity from you. I mean, we're talking oh. about Michael Beasley. This is as, I mean, as dynamic a personality as you can expect here. He's, he's, he's drank snake blood. Uh, he's eaten horse meat, and then all you want to do is start at power forward. David, I mean, we're in the final fun. stretch. I am a basketball purist right now. It's the final 20 games of the season. It's all I care about. I mean, I was expecting the shootout on Biscayne Boulevard or, you know, go parasailing. Beasley's a new Bay. man. I don't want to see that. I like the more conservative Beasley. I don't want to see those things. If you now, if you if you rephrase the question to what do you expect to see from Whiteside at the end of, or from Beasley from the by the end of the year, I might, I would probably be more likely to go with the shootout than starting at power forward. But <laughs> what do I want to see? I don't want to see him in a shootout in Biscayne Boulevard. All right, no, you're right, and, and I don't know, maybe shootouts too much. I mean, let's go somewhere not necessarily as violent and just more unhinged, let's say. Hmm. Singing karaoke, we've seen that already at Batioki, so that's not that's not nearly good enough. I don't know. I've don't had know. my fill the last few years of fun Beasley. I want I want basketball Beasley. I like sure. it. I, I, I mean, I can, what do you I, want to see know, him do? What would I want to see him do? Yeah, before the end of the season. Go in the stands. Go in the stands and punch a guy. <laughs> no, definitely not. Does he have beef with anybody in the NBA? Does he have beef with anybody in the NBA? Not that I we know always, of, right? Yeah, no, I always noticed um, he had a real... He seemed to enjoy the matchup against Josh Smith, for whatever reason. Hmm. Like, I always saw him shoot better from the perimeter whenever Josh Smith was guarding him. That might be a Josh Smith thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, it's funny, because Josh Smith is such a great defender theoretically, but I've just never seen it, but I don't, I don't know that he has beef, although I, I've seen the highlight, somebody retweeted it out lately of when he was with Minnesota, and he was rubbing the wrong, he was rubbing... Okay, I would knee. like to see that again, that was a classic. I'll say that, I would love to see him doing that to Udonis Haslam. That would be great. I, I changed my answer, there you go David, I want to see him rubbing Udonis Haslam's knee, and then being like, oh wait, thought that was mine. I'm pretty sure UD is not going to allow that to happen for more than one accidental brush of his hand. That's all. I just want to see the glare that Haslam just like throws his way. That's all I want. So there you go. You got the answer you wanted, David. Alright. Alright. The sixth seed is blank. Not something I want. I want them to go to the seventh seed and I want them to face the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't care what the outcome is. I want them to face the Cleveland Cavaliers. Is that because you want to see Heat Cavs in the playoffs regardless. So, And if the Heat get the sixth seed, there's a chance that they don't win that first round series and never play the Cavs in the playoffs. Yes. That's why. I can understand that logic. No, it's actually not logic at all. It's, it's just strictly from the heart. Like, I want to see the kind of excitement that we saw on Christmas Day. I want to see it again, what we saw just last Monday. For at least four these games. Are, yeah, these, these are things I want to see. And I think, you know, I think you and I spoke about this matchups are as favorable as you're going to get. If the ball dang is engaged and able to, let's say, limit because nobody's going to contain LeBron James but harass him sufficiently. Um, the excitement in the American Airlines arena, hell, we wouldn't have seen that since, I, I don't know, 2011 maybe because uh, I think even the last three championship runs, you know, maybe not, you know, expected but uh, maybe there was a little bit of an edge off. Now, all of a sudden, we get to knock off LeBron. It's it would be high drama, you know, the NBA would certainly love that. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised, and I know you conspiracy theorists out there will agree with me, if, if Miami faces some tough officiating over the next few weeks, just like they did with Lauren Holcamp yesterday against the Oklahoma City Thunder. And if all of a sudden, you know, as the season winds down, we find ourselves in the seventh seed so that we can face Cleveland in the first round. That would be the matchup that I think the NBA and most anybody who loves basketball wants. So... Hypothetically, 
Miami faces Cleveland in that first round, and the matchups are great. Dang has four good games, and the Heat somehow beat Cleveland, which would be kind of fitting <laughs> for LeBron's career. It would kind of, like, for that first-year failure. Yeah. Um, let's say Miami just beats Cleveland. That would mean Toronto, assuming they get the third seed, right, or Chicago, but let's just say Toronto for the sake of the, the hypothetical situation here. And Milwaukee... Milwaukee could win that series. I don't. I think those two teams, if Milwaukee gets on a streak, are probably pretty even. Um, but that would leave Toronto or Milwaukee in that second round for Miami. That's a win. That's a potential win, right? Like that. That would be an easier matchup than Cleveland would be because there's no You're LeBron jump. James involved. So You're jumping the gun a little bit here because my next filling in the sandwich or finishing each other sandwiches is <laughs> if Miami makes the playoffs. Their best chance of advancing is against Blank. It's Toronto. If advancing to the next round, Toronto. Because they match up well. Dragic and Lowry is if anything cancel each other out in the way Lowry's been playing compared to Dragic, Dragic Dragic probably wins that matchup. Wade against DeRozan. And then you have the small forward situation in Toronto, which is a mess, and the Heat have the wall Dang. And now Dang's not always taken advantage. I'd probably say 60% of the time he fails to take advantage of the matchups. But for a whole series, I think that, that plays out and averages out in favor of Dang. And then with Whiteside in the middle, I think there's no doubt that he's probably better than Valanchunas at this point, who's been a little disappointing this year. He's starting to... He's got his moments, but Whiteside, I think, is, is, is better. Um... I like that matchup, and Spo against Dwayne Casey, that's not even a contest, so I like, I think I think it's absolutely Toronto. I mean, prior to the Oklahoma City loss, Toronto, I mean, they took us to the shed there, I mean, they, they, um, they, they beat us pretty badly, and I know, I think that was the game where Whiteside had just come back from his one-game suspension, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, and they still... I mean, I think we wound up making a game of it later on, but for the most part, they were beating us pretty handily all throughout. It's hard to, but this this Heat team has been so up and down this year. But if it's a playoff Heat team, and you expect that to bring their best basketball, I like that matchup. And remember that Toronto, that was like the first time they had beaten us in like 19 games or something, right? I think so. It was something crazy like that. So I think it was, I think it was uh, 11 ever since the beginning of the. Yeah, it was like double digits. So we, the history is there where we match up well against this team. And we know how to beat them. So, agree, disagree, or? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Chicago yeah. seems like they're kind of a mess right now. But that, the interior of Pau Gasol basically scares me. And they do get Jimmy Butler back later on this week. So That's I mean, true, he should, have, he should have enough time to acclimate. And by the way, it's a 16-game skid against Miami. There we go, 16. Before, before the win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's it for finishing each other's sandwiches. I enjoyed that. It was a good sandwich. Yours was tofu, but I got over it. Um, <laughs> coming up next, we're going to do another new segment called Your Projecting. We're going to talk a little bit about Josh McRoberts' future, which I guess is in question right now. Next on the Heat Check. Welcome back to the Heat Check. This segment is called You're Projecting. Josh McRoberts' future is a little in question. We know that he's out for the season with a right meniscus tear, but recently Zach Harper of CBS Sports was filling in for WQAM's Friday afternoon show and basically said that he doesn't think that McRoberts is coming back next year. What do you think about his comments, David? I think there's some validity to him. Uh, you know, Miami was, at least from what we've heard, actively shopping McRoberts at the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as Harper pointed out in his post, or through the radio show, rather, that he becomes somewhat superfluous because, you know, you bring on McRoberts when you first... Let's, let's take a step back and look at exactly what happened as far as the McRoberts era is concerned. You agree to terms with him when you're still up in the air, uh, I think it was July 7th or 8th before um, 
before LeBron James decides or officially announces that he's joining Cleveland. So you come to terms with McRoberts and Danny Granger around the same time, and you're thinking of McRoberts as a backup who's going to be able to provide some spacing, some sharp passing, develop like you called the more Spursy type offense in Miami, which is what they were originally looking at as far as their offensive scheme is concerned. LeBron leaves. That's no longer the option. Now, all of a sudden, McRoberts is going to be the starter alongside Chris Bosh, who's going to be you know still playing small ball at center. And then McRoberts is hurt because of uh, he's still recovering from knee surgery, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or was it foot surgery? I think it was foot surgery. It was a foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a foot. There's been so many things wrong with him this year. So, <laughs> uh, so he comes back, and then he's still kind of playing his way into shape. Uh, Eventually, he makes it. I don't think he ever started a game. He played just 17 games, if I'm not mistaken, playing you know as few as five minutes, as many as 23 minutes in one game, I think. So he's still kind of working his way back in there. But, of course, Chris Bosh goes down for the season. McRoberts goes down for the season. You have all these different things taking place, and then all of a sudden it's the birth of the Hassan Whiteside era. And based on his production through the past four months, you would have to say moving forward that Whiteside is going to be the starter for the Miami Heat. So that changes the philosophy of what Miami is going to be doing next season. And that's going to be Whiteside at center and Chris Bosh at his more natural power forward. So what's the point of having Josh McRoberts? Let's read Harper's um, comments right now. I don't think there's any chance. I actually would be a little shocked if he returned next season because I think they'll try to move him with Whiteside in tow and Bosh back healthy. I don't think... I, I don't think he's extraneous, but I think you can move him and try to get something for him. Now, he signed a four-year, $22.7 million contract, which is comes out to about $5 million next year that he's due. That's not expensive, but I could see where it's extremely tradable. And if the Heat needs something on the wing, uh, maybe another shooter, a Kevin Martin type, Something like that, where just a guy to knock down some three-pointers and he becomes available. Mick Roberts is going to be their top trade piece, right? Because he's the least needed out of the guys that could be traded. His contract matches up well with a lot of guys in the NBA. Um, there's He's certainly of value. But I like the idea of Mick Roberts being on this team. And I don't know if it's a foregone conclusion because it really has to... The Heat will still have their mid-level exception that they can use to find a shooter. And if that is the case, if if you're looking at this team going forward with Dragic, Wade, Whiteside, Bosch, and Dang, there's really not that many holes on the roster. McRoberts is going to be really good for this team coming off the bench. Um, and if they can use the MLE on a guy, on a shooter, and preferably a backup two-guard to, um, to just spell weight a little bit more. And then you still have Chalmers and and Napier and maybe Beasley. I mean, you have the pieces there. I don't know that they... I don't know if they're going to actively be shopping McRoberts. It's a good point, and, and I agree with you 100%. I, I, want, I want to see the McRoberts era stick around for just a little bit longer because I think he could be dynamic. I think he could be exciting. I think as a reserve, he might thrive. He would be... The Boris Dio type yes. that everybody had envisioned from him, and I think that was a big thing. Um, that was the piece he was going to fill in had you know LeBron James resigned with Miami. So I think that's his best role, and I think it's one that he'd thrive in. And so I agree with Harper that maybe he's the most valuable in terms of contract and in terms of overall worth as a player. He's the most valuable trade asset Miami may have, but I don't want to see him moved. Not just yet. Not unless somehow you can get a much more quality player, which I don't think there's any available. I, I don't. You know, nobody's going to unload a first-round pick for McRoberts. Nobody's going to unload right. a top two-guard or a top big man to back up Hassan Whiteside. He's coming off the injury, right? So there's that unknown. Like, why are you going to risk that if you're another front office? So, And right. then now we're talking about maybe a possible trade deadline move. McRoberts plays well in limited minutes. He's playing 15 minutes a game, but he's playing really, really well in those 15 minutes. And he's a major glue guy, maybe the Heat can get something for him at that point. You know, even like a future first-rounder if the Heat really want to get a first-round pick for whatever reason, which we don't think that they would do that trade. But um, it's it would seem weird to do it in the offseason, as if like he would never play another game again, which is, sounds like what Harper's saying. It would be shocked if he came back next year and played any other game in a Heat uniform. Um, I think if Pat Riley in this front office is a shrewd 
as they seem to be, they know that they would not they would be getting pennies on the dollar for McRoberts where if they think that he can live up to his expectations, they can get more for him in February as opposed to before the year even starts. And it's interesting the timing of uh, Harper's comments, considering what happened right before Miami went to the four, on their current four game road trip. One, there was a, a major event over the course of the weekend. I can't recall exactly what it was, but you know, McRoberts has been active as far as team events are concerned, um, and, and he participated in this gala event. I can't remember, remember exactly what was the point of the event, but he was there. He was you know photographed alongside his teammates. A Dragic and Anderson, if I'm not mistaken. And then he goes on the four-game road trip. So he's traveling with a team. That's generally not something we've seen from him. I don't know if he hasn't been able to, if he hasn't been willing to, if he's just been busy rehabbing. But he's apparently been cleared by team doctors to travel with a team. That seems like an encouraging thing. And I think that's what precipitated the whole conversation with Harper. Yeah, on the radio. About, yeah, yeah uh, about, about McRoberts is whether or not he would be available for the playoffs this season. I mean, obviously, you and I don't have any inside scoop from the Heat's medical staff, but, I mean, that's got to be seen as a positive, right? That he's traveling with a team when he hasn't done that all season long? Absolutely. Um, 100%. And just to have him around and on the bench um, and just kind of being there when the coaches are yelling things, I think that just helps him be part of the team and, and can only be a positive moving forward. And I don't know, I don't think he will play this year because he is allowed to return. I don't think he will. I think that I think this team doesn't really have much of a ceiling, so it kind of seems weird to have him come back, um, especially with his his lower body all being up in question with his foot and his knee and meniscus and everything. It's like, no, just take as much time as you want because we're going to give you the whole offseason. Um, but, I, I mean, w- you know, maybe he, maybe he does. I mean, that would be tantalizing, right? I mean, look, let's assume be. that the surgery on his knees – kept him off his feet for a while and as a result then his feet are back at 100 percent. i mean it, it's first it's conceivable that he's been practicing with a team and then all of a sudden he's been giving them uh, you know quality you know big off the bench there i mean look i know they brought in beasley who has some skills i know they're using henry walker a lot in that capacity but if there was anything that we saw yesterday in the oklahoma city game it's that they could have used somebody who could spread the floor a little bit more and McRoberts provides that. If we match up with, I don't know, maybe Toronto in the first round, I wouldn't mind seeing McRoberts go out there, even if it's just for five, seven, ten minutes at a time, you know, somewhere around there, where he provides some quality. You know, could you imagine those passes to Whiteside in the interior? That would be worth watching. I just want to see that next year. I don't want him to get traded. And but one thing to say um about Pat Riley is that he does still view 2016 as a big summer even if that's just re-signing Whiteside right so and Mick Roberts's contract goes through 2017-2018 um so there might be an incentive there to trade Mick Roberts to clear that future cap space but I don't like I said I don't think it's done in the off season cuz that just doesn't make as much sense because he's unproven and you're getting pennies on the dollar at that point. All right, coming up next, we'll talk about well, we'll play cereal or not cereal and we will also name the performance of the week next on the heat check. Welcome back to the Heat Check. Our performance of the week is Dwayne Wade against the Portland Trailblazers. Name the stats, David. He finished the night with 32 points on 13 of 26 shooting. He finished 6 of 6 from the line and also notched 4 rebounds, 6 assists, no blocks, but he did have 1 steal and only 2 fouls in 32 very efficient minutes. So we missed the cutoff on the Cleveland Cavaliers performance in our last, last podcast, but he was sensational against Portland and he was huge down the stretch. He played great. He went shot for shot with LaMarcus Aldridge in the last seven-ish minutes. And it was just fantastic. And he ended up getting the best out of, out of Aldridge in that matchup. And that was... The the fact that he had 32 points the game before, just two nights before that against Cleveland, and then followed that up with another 32-point performance, everybody was just like, oh my gosh, Wade's finally healthy. It's After that game, he had the comment, I've felt, I haven't felt this great in years and everything like that. And he actually had another great game against Denver 
two nights after that, and he fell off against the Thunder, you know, on Sunday, and I still I still chalk that up to a lazy Sunday. I just think that was just a bad bad rhythm game for them. But um, Wade is certainly at his peak of this year, right? And if he continues to play like this, he will be playing his best basketball of the season going into the playoffs, which we couldn't ask for a better situation. That's what we've been wanting from him the last four years. Absolutely. Now, I know you have a problem with this, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Oh, boy. You don't like him being labeled vintage Wade. Why is that? Because, you know, we never call Tim Duncan vintage Tim Duncan, right? We just say, oh, he's aged so gracefully, which is kind of the same thing. But it's like vintage is like hearkening back to an old where aging gracefully, it's like, okay, used to be this and now you're this and you're still really great, just in a different way. We never really talk about Wade in that fashion. It's like, oh, if he has a good game, he played like he did before. But that's never true, you know, because he's not going to the line 15 times a game ever anymore. Where vintage Wade, he is playing above the rim. Throwing his body, he's basically playing like James Harden, right? Except without the three-pointers. He's just always attacking, throwing his body into big guys and getting to the line ten times a game. So when he scores 32 points, but he only goes to the free-throw line how many times? Six of six. Six of six, right? So he that's not like a lot of trips to the free-throw line. That's three trips to the free-throw line. So, yeah, I don't, I don't like it being vintage because I feel like we're not giving credit to the way he's changed his game. And I think when he retires... We're going to say, oh, wow, Wade really did age gracefully, just like Tim Duncan did. And I had a whole post about way earlier in the year about how he was the top scorer in the NBA in the fourth quarter, and that's because the, the Heat continually feed him because he's their best one-man playmaker. He's their one-man offense for so much of the season he has been because he's got so many different post moves. And like I said, earlier in his career, vintage Wade just went headstrong right into the lane and just put up put shots up, and he was magical, and he was great at it. But now he's more conservative, he's more thoughtful in his approach, he's more deliberate with how he gets to the basket, and his post-up moves are incredible, and that's not something he used to have. So I don't think, I think Vintage Wade is just an inaccurate way to describe the way, when he has a good game, the way in which he, he plays. I agree 100%. I think, I, I like what they're saying there, it's kind of a way of paying homage to the greatness that he had, or that he was, but... You're absolutely right. The, the game has changed. You and I have talked about the old man game on a number of occasions, and he certainly embodied that more than any other player. I mean, there, you know, you get a guy like Tim Duncan, and it's an apt comparison, but, you know, Duncan always had the old man game. It's not like he was changing that around, mm-hmm. and, he, and he was just able to use his length and his shooting in order to you know, break down larger opponents. You know, at a time when, when he came into the league, centers were still pretty sluggish, slower overall, and he was able to use his quickness and athleticism to get past them. So that's a, a completely different animal. But as far as Wade is concerned, you're absolutely right in how his, his game has aged as gracefully and as well as it has. And it's so it's so interesting. You know, I don't want to digress too much here, but in context of who Wade is and how he's perceived, you know, so much of the narrative about who Wade is I think really shapes the way people consider his game as he's aged. You know, I don't think he's a very popular figure, even as he's a very popular figure. I know that sounds completely ridiculous there, but a lot of people hate him outside of South Florida. Yes, because he's always complaining and he seems entitled to the calls and all that stuff because he used to just throw his body in front of moving trains and expect a foul call. Right. Yeah. And he's perceived as dirty, too. Yes. from from your average fan in uh, Golden State to you know Bill Simmons, a lot of people perceive him across the country that he is one of the dirtiest players of all time. Do you remember that call him like two years ago? Like, I think it was Greg Doyle wrote on how he's like the dirtiest player in the NBA, and it's finally like, like he's finally unmasking it, like as he's the dirtiest player in the NBA. There's a I call. It got remember. like it got like a lot of a lot of heat by Heat fans. No pun intended, but I, I mean, you know, he he's done some things. Uh, I think the altercation with Rajon Rondo, and especially having as vocal and as popular a fan as Bill Simmons, criticize what happened between Wade and Rondo. But I mean, the, between you and me, I wish he would have done even worse to Rondo. I hate Rajon Rondo. I've always hated Rajon Rondo, and as far as I'm concerned, he could have tossed him even harder. And and I. For the, with the exception that I wouldn't have wanted to see a compound fracture of his arm, I, I wouldn't have minded whatsoever if he got hurt. Well, but luckily, nobody else but you and I are hearing this, so... 
They'll just, it'll, that will remain between us. Okay. Um, so the, the thing is, you know, it's just interesting how people, since they dislike him as much as they have, that he doesn't necessarily get the credit that he ha- he should for the way he's aged. And then you have, you know, Charles Barkley um, criticizing him and saying that he's done, that he's been done for years, even when he keeps coming back and keeps showing everybody that he's still capable, that he's still a great facilitator, that he's still a great scorer, that he's still a, com- a competitive spirit. I, I mean... I don't know. I, I mean, only only time will tell what the legacy is. Even the, even for somebody who's already established himself, you know, as the third best shooting guard of all time, in, in a lot of people's you know arguments, mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting because you know you you know the the legacy, the legend of Michael Jordan overshadows the entire NBA, the entire history of the NBA, and then when you come to Kobe Bryant. Nobody has a more loyal following. There, right. there are cults. The cult of Kobe is as oppressive as you can possibly imagine. And, and then Dwayne Wade, it's, you know, yeah, sure, he has his fans, but he has almost as many vocal detractors as he does supporters. There's like there's like a mutual respect, right, for Wade. Like, no, we really, no, no, we get how great he is, but I, don't, I just don't like him. And that's kind of like the whole thing. It's almost like people are like, oh, no, I know how great LeBron is. I just don't think, I don't like him personally. And I don't think... Like, Wade hasn't done things to, like, LeBron has done, you know, in the public, the you know, PR stunts and things like that that are just to- totally backfiring in his face. But it's kind of weird, right? Like, yeah, we know he's great, but we just don't really like him. I mean, maybe it's the hardware. He likes the MVP trophies or whatever. But, I mean, he was such a he single hand well, maybe not single-handedly, but he was as big a part of the 2006 NBA Finals. He basically he single-handedly back. brought the Heat back in that series. All right, you said it, not me. But anyway, I, I mean, certainly he was the biggest part of why they won that first title. Yeah. And, and you can't take that away from him. For everybody that says, oh, they wouldn't have won in 2012, 2013 without you know LeBron James, sure, but 2006 certainly doesn't happen without Dwayne Wade. Um, and and he's, he's the best player in Heat history. There's no denying that. 100%. And you kind of touched on a little bit, but historically speaking, what guards, point guard, shooting guards, have aged better than Wade, just like really changed their game as they age to better suit their needs. And I think Wade, you know, 2010 hits, LeBron, Bosch, they sign, and he becomes this ter- amazing off-ball force who's just like a th- just like this threat that defenses can never keep their eyes off of. Meanwhile, they have to keep their eye on LeBron James and even Chris Bosch, you know? So he becomes this whole other thing. And then he starts posting up more, and he starts, and he, and he masters all, he like kind of, you know, in the back room is like mastering these post moves. And like, we kind of saw that last year and more so even this year where he's just incredible in the post. Um, and he just has like this barrage of moves that he can throw at opponents. And, you know, Iverson for as great as he is and like the Kobe-like Colt that Iverson has, he basically played the one way his entire career, right? Yeah. Even Kobe Bryant has played one way his entire career. But, and I don't mean to cut you off there, but I, I think that the reason why Kobe played the way he did was because there was a template already in place in Michael Jordan. And, and he he was one of the first, just because the, the level of athleticism when he first came into the league was so off the, off the scale. Like, like, it was just so, go back and see some of his earlier games against teams like Boston and Atlanta, and he's playing at a level where nobody else comes close to. What are you talking about now, Wade? No, I'm talking about Michael Jordan. Oh, Michael Jordan. Okay, yeah. And and Michael Jordan, he was at such a high level that for him to still be effective later in his career, he had to change the way he did. He bulked up, he put on muscle, right. he changed his center of gravity substantially, and he really did develop that, that fadeaway that we've seen on so many different highlight reels as far as that, that, that second triple run there, that second three-peat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he was a different player vastly different player defensive force some... that thrived on turnovers yes yeah yes but and, and that could have been why kobe already had that template established as far as i mean he's had that fade away throughout his pretty you know throughout his career pretty much mm-hmm. and i think it's because he was trying as hard as he was to emulate michael jordan so he what you're saying is he skipped that whole first phase of just being an athletic freak and just tried to be an incredible all-around shooter right away exactly okay Still, though, like, Kobe's teams have struggled the last few years, while Wade's haven't. Wade had LeBron. But 
I feel like that you know, like Kobe's never gonna alt. He never really altered his game to the point where he was gonna pass it more to teammates or really change any or just not shoot as much or try to make his teammates around him better because he, like he was said in this documentary in his interview on Bill Simmons's TV show, like he just thinks that the best play on any given possession is for him to shoot the ball basically, and I feel like Wade kind of he did a you know he's managed his game and grown his game and molded his own game for the benefit of his team. And I think, you know, as much as we want to talk about individual awards, we also always say, well, his team didn't win. But, you know, Wade's team always wins, right? There's only a couple of years there, one year, where he didn't make the playoffs. Right? Two years. Yeah. One year. So uh, the, year, the year where they got uh, Michael Beasley. Yeah, it was the one year. So his teams always win. And they always typically go deep into the playoffs. So... I don't know. That's my two cents. But uh, cereal or not cereal? Absolutely. All right. Tuesday, tomorrow, at Milwaukee. A big, big playoff game. We're a game and a half behind the Bucks right now. Are the Bucks cereal or are they not cereal, David? They are not cereal any longer. Why? A six-game road trip. I mean, losing streak, excuse mm. me, that's that's enough to take the cereal out of anybody. I mean, that, that milk has gone bad. That cereal is stale. Uh, they traded away Brevin Knight and seem to have lost all their momentum. Larry Sanders leaving the team. There's so much going on there, and, and I think Jason Kidd might be over his head. I don't know if, if that's... Don't you dare talk bad about Jason Kidd. Oh, I hate Jason Kidd. Why uh, are you a supporter? You know I'm a supporter of his coaching. Oh, that's right. The personal Jason Kidd, the, the man Jason Kidd, I don't want to comment on, but... The coach, I absolutely love. Okay. It's fascinating. But he always has like a permanent scowl on his face now. I don't know what happened. Maybe he's smelling that bad milk like 100% of the time. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's a scowl that turns into a smirk, right? I mean. Right. It's kind of like a, it's like a, it's a twofer. <laughs> like he knows something. He, 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 you know, he's shitting the milk and he doesn't want to tell you as you're eating the bowl of cereal. Well, you know like, what it is. Really he's, he's the only coach in the NBA that gets away without wearing a tie. <laughs> Nobody's imposed a dress code on him. When is Adam Silver going to step in and say, "Well, you need to wear a tie"? I think I, I don't know if it is part of the dress code. I'm making. I'm probably making that up. But he's he doesn't wear ties. You know, Don Nelson for years used to wear those t-shirts, so I don't think it's part of the dress code. No, I don't think it is either. But he, there is something weird when he's the only one not doing it. Yeah, I think Commissioner Silver has bigger fish to fry. I don't know if he does. Um. <laughs> Not literally. I mean, that's you know, Jason Kidd's still about six three, so I don't know if he could fry him. No, probably not. <laughs> um, I have to agree. I don't think they're cereal. They were completely cereal, and for me, I'm cereal when I'm watching Milwaukee. But I love watching the Bucks still. I think John Henson, uh, Giannis, Chris Middleton, and then they're gonna have Jabari Parker coming back next year. I mean, that is a really interesting core. And even now, they're one of my go-to teams on League Pass, believe it or not. But um, So I'm excited for this game tomorrow, but this is a really big game. This is a really big game. I don't know if it's as big as people are saying. Like This it, this doesn't determine the sixth seed by any means. Because Milwaukee still holds a tiebreaker over us regardless. But um, it's just an opportunity to kind of kick them a game back and move up. So Wednesday at Boston, back-to-back. Are the Celtics cereal or not cereal? I think we talked about that last time we played yeah. them, but I don't think that they're cereal. Yeah, they're not, right? We talked about how after the trades, you know, this team tended to buckle down. They they actually were hot there for a little while, too. So I just don't, we don't see Brad Stevens as a cereal kind of guy, right? No, definitely not. Um, and it should be interesting to see how Whiteside and Olenek. Oh, good point. That should be no. very interesting. Do you think Olenek tries to go after him? No. no There's no way that happens. I, from what, what I heard was that he actually, you know, to his credit, and we're seeing a whole new, you know, much kinder, gentler version of his son Whiteside, yes. and that he actually contacted Olenek afterwards and spoke to him, and he said Olenek was really cool. And that was part of why he felt even more guilty about the whole incident, is that, you know, later on, he felt really bad about taking it out on such a nice guy as Olenek is, apparently. And, and so uh, I think they're friendly. So maybe we'll see the inverse instead of this overt oh. aggression. 
Like a like a handshake, like a bro hug at, at the beginning of the game or something. Well, maybe, maybe even like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to beat up my new friend Kelly. I'm going to take it easy on him. Oh well, we don't want to see that. No, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. But it could happen. So is Kelly Olenek Andre and Bargnani, Bargnani from like three years ago, four years ago? Oh God, what a comparison! They're like the same player. <laughs> yeah. Um, not as much facial hair. Uh, yeah. I think it's an interesting comparison. I don't know. I can't wait to see your 1500 word post on it. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At Atlanta. Atlanta cereal, right? You know, three losses in a row. Tough One going their, their sure. idol, the Spurs. I don't know. But I still think they're kind of cereal. I think a team with Schroeder on it has to be. Um, I'm going to go with not sterile hmm. on this. Because and of the three-game losing streak? Because, yeah, because I think they're questioning themselves a little bit. I, I'm not sure. I haven't really been following their response. And I know, I mean, it's a, it's what they just went through, uh, you know, a, a loss to the Golden State Warriors at Golden State, the, the end of a road trip at Oklahoma City that's caught fire recently, and then facing, you know, the San Antonio Spurs at home. Those are really tough matchups for any team. I don't, you know, I, I, no one expected them to win all three of those games. But I think this three-game losing streak kind of took them away from their identity a little bit, especially on the defensive end where they gave up 114 points to San Antonio. So maybe they are, they're questioning themselves a little bit. And, and I, you know, you and I have talked about this before, that as great as they're playing during the regular season, they may not have the, I hate to call it fortitude, but maybe the the the... the self-awareness, the strength of soul, or whatever you want to call it. I know that sounds you know strange, and that's just because I'm lacking the, the right word for it. But maybe they're not sure who they want to be when the playoffs roll around. And, and this could cause them to question themselves a little bit. I'm going to say not serial. You go serial, that's fine. I don't know. I just I, I don't want to hold this recent stretch against them too much. Mm-hmm. Because I think I'm just kind of looking at their greater body of work, and they seem to just enjoy playing basketball so much when it's going right. That I still quali- like qualify this team as serial. And I feel like by Friday, they should hopefully, well, not hopefully for the Heat, but yeah, no, for, by Friday, they should probably get back in there because I doubt that they go on like a five, six game losing streak. Not well, they've got, they've got Boston coming up. Right. And then Miami on Friday. So, so this is their time to kind of click it back in the year. I think this losing to their idols, like the Spurs, the way they did. Might switch their gear a little bit. Be like, oh, we need to actually give a crap about these final few games. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There could be some complacency there. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cleveland's not going to catch them, but Budenholzer doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to say, oh, just take the last you know two three weeks. Of the Kyle Korver had an interesting quote, and I can't remember where I read this, but he's he even talked about like. You know, seeing a team basically as old, I'm paraphrasing, but basically as old as the Spurs and who have accomplished so much actually still caring this late in the season, even though they've basically locked up a playoff spot, um, is incredible and kind of shows us like like these games really do matter and we still we need to keep going at it 100% every night. I Again, I paraphrase that like completely, but no, that's basically that's what it's a, a, That sounds like a direct quote. <laughs> That's from the mouth of Kyle Korver. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I won't hold this recent thing against. I think they switch it, and I think we get killed by the Hawks on Friday. Uh, so, are we looking at projections here as far as whether or not Miami can win the last three games of this four-game road trip? I think they definitely can. Right? I don't. I mean, Milwaukee and Boston. Certainly seem winnable, and after beating Portland and Cleveland and the way Atlanta's been playing, I don't say that is an is a definitive loss. Even though I kind of just did say that, but um, if Miami just if this Sunday if this last Sunday against OKC was just a weird fluky game, and they kind of keep playing the way they did against Cleveland and Portland, and they remain healthy, I see no reason why they can't win it out. But and this team has been better on the road than at home this whole season, so um, 
I'd probably say like two and one to finish it out. Yeah, it sounds it sounds right. I mean, but you never know. Like, yeah. You're right. They, they could go three and zero just as easily as they could go zero and three. It's 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 tough to predict with them. I know we've had this issue throughout the whole season, but I I, I like the matchup against Milwaukee. I think we can catch them at yeah. the right time. Boston scares me a little bit in that, you know, we saw how lethargic they looked on Sunday against Oklahoma City. Do they fall into that trap as far as a, a you know, second game of a back-to-back set? Do they look past Boston mm. and, and focus on the matchup on Atlanta? You know, those are things to consider. If, if anything happens, and, you know, knock on wood, if anything happens on Tuesday against Milwaukee and they want to rest guys, Wednesday's the night to do it because they'd rather go up against Atlanta I think on Friday and provide a tougher matchup with them before they they close out the series. But uh, I mean, it should be a good game regardless. And we forgot one. Sunday is Detroit. We're probably not going to do a podcast before then. So the Pistons is the first game back after the road trip ends. Mm. So Detroit is an interesting team because they could just get hot mm-hmm. and then just win the game that way and they still and they have Andre Drummond in the middle which might cancel out his on white side so that's an interesting matchup there and I remember hearing about this years ago from none other than your your best friend Tony Fiorentino on the Heat broadcast who said that you know the last game of the road trip is tough but there's nothing quite like that first game back from a road trip where you're just adjusting to life back at home you know even from a a, a day-to-day kind of you know, family man sort of perspective, you know, you're, you've been gone for a week and a half or however long you've been gone for your road trip. And then you come back and as far as, you know, you have to find out about your kids and, you know, attend events, do something with the, the, the wife or girlfriend, you know, unpack, readjust to life back home. And so it's always, you're, you're rarely focused on basketball. You don't have time to practice in between the time that, you know, you've got Friday, Against Atlanta, and I know it's not very far, but then you, you, you arrive at Miami late Saturday night. You don't have enough time to really adjust, get into practice the next day, so you're kind of you're, – you lose focus somewhat. Um, if they win those three games, then I obviously I think they lose against Detroit as well. Yeah, and uh, Detroit has Joel Anthony. Oh, Who's the revenge he? game. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. They're not. He's not going to let Miami off the hook. Nor should he. Yeah, that that's the right. Worst move, worst move Pat Riley ever made. Really? You really think that? Or do you um, think the Mike Miller amnesty? You know what? No. I, I, as for for all the 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 complaining that LeBron has done, not publicly, but you, right. you, you can tell that there's been some. He took umbrage, let's say, at, mm. at the decision to waive Mike Miller. I'll never forget the fact that, you know, they got shellacked the next day when they faced the Washington Wizards. Because it had just been, you know, it was such a great moment, a team bonding experience where you're at the White House for the second year in a row. You're meeting President Obama. He's thanking the team. He's making jokes. It's just a great, wholesome experience. The next day after practice, you're at a team lunch and it's like, hey, Joel. You might want to go pack your bags, buddy, because you've been traded to Boston. You know, in Boston, too. You know, right. the team at that time still had Rajon Rondo. They were still a nemesis, so to speak. And that means Riley was willing to get on the phone with Danny Ainge to, to discuss right. the, the trade anyway. Right. I mean, that's hardcore. And then, and then the next day, it's just like, I, it was like a zombie version of the Miami Heat. Was yeah. out there. They, they were just completely demoralized by the whole thing. And I think... If you're going to look at the last season overall, I'd say those two were clearly the worst things that you could have done. Even giving a chance to Michael Beasley or Greg Oden, maybe they didn't pan out the way you'd like them to, but they made sense on paper. They didn't work, but they made sense. If you could have gotten something out of them as reclamation projects, and you did for a little while, you did get something out of Beasley. Um, I, I think the Joel Anthony thing was just much worse than, than waving Mike Miller, as much as I would have loved Mike Miller to have stuck around. Seems like he's not doing anything in Cleveland now, though. And uh, Joel Anthony, it's, I don't even know if he's playing that much in Detroit. Did he Did he set a career high in points? Did he? I think so. I'm not watching any Detroit basketball at all. Oh, no. This will probably I mean, be the first time I watch the Pistons since the beginning of the year. 
I, I watched uh, some Reggie Jackson games just to see how he was thriving there, and uh, and the great highlight of him throwing up on the sidelines. But other than that, no, I haven't seen much Detroit basketball. And it's weird because I feel like we haven't really played Detroit much this year, and that's true because we play them Sunday and then again the following Saturday. Yeah, we're gonna get our fill. We're gonna get all the all the Pistons we need. So we'll nice little reunion with Joel Anthony, and uh, this was a nice little reunion here on the podcast. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to The Heat Check. You can find us on iTunes. Just search the name, rate us, review us, say nice things about us. Find my writing and David's writing over at allyoucanheat.com. You can also find the podcast there and on SoundCloud. So plenty of ways to listen, no excuse. And if you're listening to this, you already did. So thank you. And uh, we'll see you next week. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.